Hey everyone, this is Lauren Conching, the new Director of Coach Education at the ITA. For July's podcast, your host, Dave Mullins, sits down with legendary coach Peter Smith. Peter was inducted into the ITA Men's Hall of Fame in May 2023. Some of his career highlights include five NCAA team championships during his tenure at USC, a two-time ITA Division I Coach of the Year recipient, while also being the only coach to date to lead four different men's programs to a national top 25 ranking. Dave and Peter cover a lot of ground in this podcast, including some wonderful stories from Peter's tenure as a college coach, the importance of building relationships, recruiting, focusing on the small details, learning from mistakes, and more. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Peter Smith, thank you for joining me on the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. Well, I mean, thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's an honor. Well, well, great. It's, uh, you've been on my, my list for, for a while. And I'm glad we finally got around to it. And, and uh, like I told you prior to this, I've got a million questions for you, but we'll try and fit in uh, nine or 10 and see where we go. But, um, you know, obviously recently, Peter, you were inducted into the, the ITA Men's Hall of Fame and congratulations on that. It was a great, great night, great ceremony, much deserved. And in order to have the career that you've had, in order to get into the Hall of Fame and probably into several more over over the next several years, um, you have to be willing to do some of the the little things, some of the things that appear inconsequential at the time, but add up to something pretty special. Would you be able to talk about what some of those little things that you are willing to do and maybe go above and beyond what maybe other people aren't willing to do? Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I, I don't want to ever say or think that I was in any way, shape or form better than anybody else. Um, I think when you have success, you realize just how fortunate you are um, when you win it. NCAA championship, you look back and you said, yeah, I was lucky here. I was lucky here. Just there's a lot of fortune. I think the one thing that I really enjoyed through my 32 years was learning. Um, I remember being at Long Beach State. Uh, I, I mean, we have to understand, I never was an assistant. I used to dream about being an assistant for one of the great ones, you know, Dick Gould, Len Bassett, you know, those coaches that really helped me. Um, but every chance I got, I talked to them. But one of the very first ones I had the chance of being around was George Allen. So a lot of people might go, who was George Allen? Look up George Allen. He, he was a great football coach and they brought him back to Long Beach State to revive the program. It, it's kind of an incredible, sad story, but you know they had a losing season for 20 years or something and he got them to even and they gave him a Gatorade shower. He caught a, the flu from it, got a cold and died. Oh I mean, it's, he was he was very old, but you know, I'd be in the head coaches meetings. I would sit next to him every single time. When I was at Fresno State, Jerry Tarkanian was the basketball coach. I sat next to Jerry. I wanted to learn as much as I could. Um, you know, those were incredible people. And, you know, and George was like, never be a fly on the wall. You know, it's all in the details. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't, I mean, a lot of people would laugh at that because I'm not, I can be not detail oriented, but I, I, I have a lot of stuff in my brain. And so, you know, I think 
it all starts with how I started coaching. I started coaching. I was 23 years old. I just turned 23. They named me the head coach. I was taking 21 units to graduate. Uh, I had just lost uh, to Michael Chang in a in a, a small, uh, you know, low future satellite, whatever you want to call it, and just realized, you know, like, okay, I'm 360 something in the world. I'm not good enough. Like, I I don't want to be that guy hanging on. And I'd only played for a year. So I went back, they offered me the head coaching job, which was incredible looking back on it. But I, I had a part-time assistant, but he was very part-time. And half of the team were my former teammates. So I turned to them and I used them as my assistants. And so I think what I always enjoy, look, I'm a relationship guy. I love relationships. It's what drives me, um, you know, but I always just enjoyed my relationships with the team. And, and, and I really felt like at first I coached it like I was a player. Um, and there were some bad parts to that and some good parts to that. Um, but I was always seeking the guy's advice. And, and I would say, you know, fast forward 25 years <clears throat> when our, our teams, you know, started to be, you know, win NCAA championships, my connection with our captains, with our leader, leaders was incredible. I mean, we, we literally would say, I love you to each other, which seems, you know, weird in so many ways. But, you know, <clears throat> you know, during the Hall of Fame, I was like, my kids taught me to love at a different level. Uh, and those of us that have children, when that child is born, you feel this instant love that is, you didn't know that existed before. Um, so I just think, you know, going past and having that relationship, look, the very first thing I said to that team in 1987 was, we are not going out together anymore. I'm not drinking beers with you guys anymore. And you cannot call me Peter. And they looked at me and basically said, F you, we're, we're not calling you coach. And it was like a stalemate. <laughs> it was very interesting looking back. And so they came up with a nickname for me, which my youngest son still calls me. And some of them still call me was Co. They call me Co, short for coach. And, and I loved it. I actually thought that was hilarious and really liked that. And so just, I knew the most important thing in the room was my relationship with them and to be able to push them over that line over that wall whatever it is and I felt like over the 32 years I worked extremely hard from start to finish at those relationships and and meant it and loved it and you know that saying you know they don't care what you know until they know that you care that is really true and you know I I used, you know, as you get older, it's a lot harder to relate to kids, but I, I used my individual time with them, my individual hits, you know, I made sure all of them got individuals with me and I used that time to ask them about other things as well as work on their game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And my research for this conversation, Peter, I read a blog. Um, I think it was one of your former players wrote it and he talked about that sometimes you'd write a note and, and put it under their hotel uh, door 
um, the morning of a match and they'd wake up and they'd read the note and, and uh, it, it obviously meant the world to this player and, and others. And those were kind of, um, I don't know if that's true, but, but it sounds like those are the little details that go a little further than, than maybe coaches recognize that that meant so much to, to so many players. Um, is, is, was that story true? And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like that, that you did, that was Rossi. I mean, that was the funny thing about Rossi. Um, I mean, this is kind of awful to say, and I wouldn't recommend this. Rossi was the only player I ever getting, got into a physical altercation. <laughs> um, but he's an Aussie, and sometimes that's how he settled his disputes. <laughs> uh, I think he might be proud of that, too. But he gave me a, Chris, a Christmas present that year with him in a fighter pose, and we both got a laugh out of it. And, you know, we, we it happened, you know, but he was just is this amazing guy he's a mental coach now and, and sure. does amazing work but you know he kind of talked about soft skills which it was kind of funny when I read that I was like huh I do do that you know it you know it I I just I always just trusted my gut um with a lot of things and you know listen to someone like coach Gould is like you know I think coaching everybody the same is a mistake mm. and you know, you, you coach them a little differently, but you, you treat them all fair. And, you know, there's the individual, then there's the team. It's complicated. And then I think it's more complicated now, but I still think kids are kids and competition's competition and, and getting the right people on the team is key. Mm. Well, that's what I wanted to spend a few minutes on a few questions around recruiting and, and, I joined Fresno State six months after you left for Pepperdine, and uh, you took some really good players with you. But but you also left some some good players, and you seem to be able to uh, establish this great mix of of California-born players and international-born um, uh, players. And and obviously, you probably did that at Long Beach and and did it at Pepperdine as as well. But how did you figure out international? You're 23, like you said, you weren't an assistant coach, but you figured out international coaching without any um, or, or international recruiting without any websites, any social media. Maybe you had a fax machine and, and a phone, but how did you figure out that part of the equation as a college coach? And then again, what encouragement or advice would you have for young coaches? in developing their own international network? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about knowing people and, and knowing people in Europe, knowing people in different countries. And, you know, I don't think I got my first <clears throat> big international recruit till I was at Fresno State. Um, <clears throat> you know, I did, <clears throat> it's kind of funny, I, I wrote one of them today, David Fontaine, who was kind of my first person he he played for me at Long Beach State and I still keep in touch with him um, but you know my old doubles partner his brother came to play for me at Fresno State Frederick Berg who lost in the finals in the NCAAs and was a great player and and just you know for me I, I, I never realized what I was doing um, and I wasn't intentional but I was always paying it forward I was always like I really believed that and I still believe that you know, treating people right is extremely important to me. Um, you know, I'm far from perfect, but that's always my goal is to have have a great experience with everyone, uh, no matter how I'm feeling inside. Um, so, 
you know, I think I, I built up some, you know, that's how I was able to coach my former teammates is, you know, they, they trusted me, they knew me, even though I always tried to be real and regular and all that stuff. Um, but just having that, you know, connection and those people trusting me that I would do the right thing for their person they were very close to. Mm -hmm. And do you think that's just something that you have naturally based on your own upbringing, your experiences uh, in your teenage years, your college years, yourself? Um, you know, if, if coaches are maybe a little hesitant, maybe they're a little shy, maybe they feel intimidated, maybe they're in Europe, but they, you know, don't feel like they should go up to that coach or that parent or that player. Um, again, do you have any advice on, on how they might push past those barriers or, or they're kind of yeah. self-inflicted I guess it's trying to build those relationships I think doing it at tournaments is very hard mm -hmm. um, I would just make visits I, I didn't like going to tournaments I would make visits <clears throat> like I can remember going to Bolstad in Sweden which is not a bad place to go to in the summertime so that wasn't too hard but and just going there and, and meeting people and getting to know people and 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 trying to you know going out and having dinner with them and, you know, a beer or whatever, and, and just building those relationships. Um, and, and maybe that doesn't happen, you know, uh, that year, but maybe three years down the road, there's a good player and, and just, you know, just trying to have those things. And, you know, I, I hated going to tournaments. I thought it was such a rat race and mm. uh, it, it just wasn't, you know, I would much rather go, watch a kid play at an academy or different thing where there was people you could meet. So, you know, mm -hmm. having that and, and just a lot of little things, answering emails, um, being responsive to people. Um, I mean, Daniel Kukerman emailed us. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. That's, that's important. All of that stuff. Yeah. So, so did you have any type of system then? So you'd meet somebody in Europe. Um, again, back in the day, we didn't necessarily yeah. have access to the, the, the tools we have now, but did you send them a Christmas card or, or no, would no. You, I, it wasn't, it wasn't that kind of hokey. Yeah, um, that's for sure. It was more just building just that happy. relationship. I, I mean, I know that like I I've had teams where, I had too many Americans. I mean, that's terrible. I get it, you know, <laughs> to say that even. But I, I just feel like even now I see my juniors going off to college and there's so much that they expect and want. Mm. And when you get uh, a guy from Europe, they're like amazed at everything we have here. They're amazed at these facilities. There's amazed at all of the resources every college has. And you know, look, when I was the coach at Fresno State, there wasn't much there. I mean, I remember when Frederick Berg came on his visit, I didn't show him our courts. Um, that's how bad I felt they were. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I took him out to Sierra. <laughs> we did practice out there and and things like that. Um, you know, so. So it's it's it, it, for me, it was. I didn't have this, I never had this grand plan in my head. I never, um, or written down. I, I think I was always had these intentions in my head and trusting my gut and, 
you know, just being the youngest of five and having a good upbringing and things like that. It was, yeah, it wasn't, I, 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 I didn't write things down and I, I just kind of trusted myself. Okay. And then, you know, especially as it relates to any team, but, but I guess I'm maybe more interested in your, your best teams because now you're recruiting the best of the best. And were there any really good players and obviously don't name names, but were there any really good players that you passed on because there was a few red flags that came up in the recruiting process and, and what were those red flags? Well, you know, for me, um, I, I really, I made some mistakes when I went to USC. Um, we had a terrible team our fourth year. Um, they won it the year before I came, but really we had no one come back from that team. We just had, um, well, I shouldn't say no one, but we had Ruben Torres who played six. Um, yes, Ruben, you played six. And Denny Longre who played five. Um, and what I didn't know is Coach Leach, he was a master. He he told, you know, it was his last year, so he could make any promise he wanted. But he he told, hey, you get Ruben, you play six this year. You're going to play three or four next year. Well, he was retiring. And so, um, you know, I, I put Ruben at six the next year. He's, he still holds it against me. But, um, you know, I I wanted to have kind of an all-American team. And, and, and that was a mistake. Um, but I learned that I... <laughs> I stopped looking at rankings, to be quite honest, and it drives me nuts. I call some of my friends, um, and I guess you know they've heard it all. But in today's world, they're only they're only interested in three letters, mm -hmm. right? The UTR, and that drives me nuts. And one of my worst teams I had over 32 years was at USC, and there were a lot of highly ranked players on that team. But the team just didn't mesh. Mm. And so I stopped looking at rankings and started looking at who I wanted to coach. You know, obviously the players I recruited were ranked high, but I intentionally didn't look at rankings. I was looking at the person. Can, will this, do I think this person, will this person get along with me? Will he fit in with me? Um, and I'm a kind of, I, I'd like to think that I'm a, what you see, what you get um type of a person um but you know working hard with my players always um but you know it's hard sometimes guys when they get to 18 they're a little done uh they're done physically they're done emotionally i mean tennis is a rough sport and you know i think a lot of people when they get that scholarship you know they think all right we we got across the finish line and and really, it's just the start of things that matter. And and it's hard. It's hard to judge that. It's hard to see, you know, um, it's like, a, a you know, having someone on an interview, they always give you your best thing. So, you know, you're talking to people, you know, the friend of the coach or <laughs> the parent who watched him play. And, you know, outside of that, you're just trying to get a good base. And, and really, it all starts with my first phone call, with my first phone call, I tell kids what I'm about, you know, I'm about the team. I'm about, you know, I always told people if the team is great, it'll rise you up. Um, and, you know, a lot of my counterparts did ex the exact opposite. And, you know, people love guarantees and, you know, people that believe guarantees, 
you know, I, look, I, I lost some good recruits and, and, you know, go back, you know, someone like Marcos Giron, I, I would have loved to have had, who's a great guy, great player. I had a great career at UCLA. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I remember telling him, I think you'll make the top six. Well, you know, that, that wasn't something they wanted to hear. Right. Um, but I think through that, I got people that really, really cared about the team. And that's not to say someone like Marcos didn't, uh, he was, sure he was the best, but, you know, and just, but I was explaining what I wanted, what I needed. Um, and, and I think that resonated with guys when they came, it was all about the team. And, you know, look, I was extremely lucky with someone like Robert Farah and, and Steve Johnson, um, that they really loved the team aspect of it. And, they they played into that and and everybody followed their lead they didn't follow my lead they followed theirs right. um so i think it's not about recruiting the best but it's a, a rec about recruiting the right um and i think the more i got to know myself who i was as a person helped me attract the right people you know that fit into my team and fit into the culture that I was creating and, and wanted. Mm -hmm. And, and that culture piece, Peter, you, you talked about some of those mentors early in, in your career. Is, is that something you were picking up from, from them or you just, again, kind of instinctively knew this was, this was the type of culture you want to, again, it's an individual sport, but the team component was something that was front and center or, or how did that culture piece come together in your mind early in your career? Yeah. I mean, I think first of all, look, the biggest influence to me was Dick Gould. Um, he was extremely kind, um, you know, always had time for me. Um, I love to ask him questions. I would ask him questions about his salary, about, recruiting about coaching about everything and and no matter what he always had time for me so um he, he's just one of those individuals and and I, I just spent a lot of time watching but I also knew what what drove me you know I used to have a saying that we would have serious fun um I didn't believe that training hard would be unenjoyable mm -hmm. I thought you could train hard and still have a blast doing it Mm -hmm. um you know we played a ton of ultimate frisbee um which as as my career went further it it kind of it, guys weren't buying into it like they were they wanted a stopwatch mm -hmm. and things like that but you know i can remember on our off day at ncas going and playing ultimate frisbee for an hour and a half which to me I only did that once, uh, but it was an off day. We didn't need to play tennis. Uh, you know, it was great. And I, you know, I, I did that sport because soccer, American guys got hurt in soccer. The Euros made us look foolish and I was terrible. Um, but I felt, you know, we played ultimate Frisbee with the football, but it was too fast and guys were getting hurt. But with a Frisbee, it hung in the air so guys could see where they were and they weren't as likely to hurt, get hurt or hurt each other. Um, you know, so that was that was a bond that we were enjoying doing. We were teaching competition. 
Um, I, I really wanted the team to look at me as the most competitive individual they'd ever met. And I wanted to see them to see that being, it's okay to be very competitive. I was extremely competitive. The only fights we got into were on the ultimate football field. And they were very upset with me. They would, I can hear Case Vanhoff screaming right now. I kicked Case off the team for a week uh, once, you know, <laughs> how he was treating the, the coach. And, you know, it's it just, we, we just laugh so hard about it now, but that was teaching us. And also you play an hour, hour and a half of ultimate Frisbee, you know, that's, you got to be in shape to do that. And yeah. um, so, you know, did we go over our 20 hour minimum <laughs> playing <laughs> ultimate Frisbee? I mean, really, is that, is that countable? That would be the, <laughs> if guys wanted to leave, they left, but no one wanted to leave because I was talking so much smack out there <laughs> that <laughs> they just wanted to kill me. And uh, so that was super fun. So we had tons of fun. I mean, you yeah. know, that was our conditioning for five NCAA team championships. And, and we were as well conditioned as anybody else. And so, yeah. you know, certainly we're in the weight room with the strength coach and that, but we'd play ultimate Frisbee almost every day. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Uh, but I no. really felt like that always brought us together. So right. what is that you have as a team to bring them together? Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking about that competitive spirit, Peter, uh, we talk a lot about sportsmanship on, on, on this podcast. And, and unfortunately, we've seen a rise in, in um, sportsmanship issues since COVID. Uh, I'm not sure if there's anything, uh, any relation to it. Uh, people having built up frustrations that they're trying to get out uh, from that time period. I don't know. But I was always, you know, I got to see you coach uh, um, on several occasions and, and at NCAA championships with everything on the line. And you always seem to have so much uh, emotional control in those moments. And I think sometimes young coaches get into this industry and there's a certain expectation. I've got to look a certain way. I've got to be arguing with officials. I've got to be, you know, waving my hands all over the place to demonstrate that I'm the coach you know, I, I'm in control here, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think they're doing themselves any favors in the process. And I'm just interested, again, how you develop that emotional control, um, any advice you'd have for young coaches coming up uh, in the system and, and how they might think about this during dual matches, really. My wife would, would answer this question a little differently. <laughs> and she would think that, wow, you are getting... Praise for your emotional control. Look at you. <laughs> Boy, did they not know the real you, Peter. Um, you know, look, I, I, I think throughout my time coaching, I learned. Um, and the only way you learn is to, um, you know, make mistakes. Um, and, and, you know, Coach Jim Sweeney, another coach that I, tried to spend a lot of time around. You might know him since you played at Fresno State, but he was a legend at Fresno State, the football coach. And I used to go be in the locker room with them before the the, the games. And, you know, he, he taught me a lot of things, but, you know, he, one thing he said to me was, coaches will never win a game, Peter. No speech will ever win a game, but how you act and how you carry yourself um, will lose. 
Mm. Uh, and certainly um, in an NCAA championship, my uh, nonverbal cues that I'm giving my team are incredibly important. Um, so, I mean, I, I distinctly remember, you know, and, and, you know, the only thing, look, the only thing I cared about was May. That's all I cared about. I, I could care less about a conference championship, could have cared less. Um, I mean, certainly you want to win. Sure. But it was always about building and building and building for that time when, to me, that's the only thing anybody remembers. Um, that's certainly that at USC, that was the only thing that was going to give me a raise. Um, and, you know, I, I distinctly... I remember it like it's yesterday in 2009 when we're in the finals of the NCAAs. And, um, you know, I called my wife before that match and I said, honey, I am scared out of my mind right now. Like, I have to win this match. Our team has to win today. And it's not about me. It's about our family. And, you know, like <laughs> at USC, this is what's expected. Mm -hmm. And she, she said, get your shit together. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, I will. I, I, you know, and I walked into the locker room and, and there's cameras in there and that you're mic'd up. And I was like, this is nuts. I've coached a lot and now I've got to do this. Mm -hmm. um, so I learned over the years when I got this from Mike Krzyzewski was on those, on those days, on, the, on a game day, a bigger game day, the only thing I was responsible for was myself. That's it. I wasn't, you know, I'm a doer. I'm always doing like 10 million things in one day. And the only thing I'll do on that day, I won't do anything. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not going to the doctor. I'm not running any errands. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to have a great workout. I'm going to have the best workout, most enjoyable workout. I'm going to get that heart rate down. I'm going to have a great breakfast. And I'm going to go there. And I'm just going to love that moment. And the bigger the match, the bigger the moment, the more I loved it because really I was living my dream mm. um, and I felt so lucky. And, and I can guarantee you that when we played, our teams played an NCAA championship, I always felt like the most fortunate person in the world. I was actually, you know, out there competing for something I love. And I just, that overtook, <laughs> is, is what, did I do that in year five? Did I do that in year 10? No, I probably got that figured out in maybe like year 20. Mm -hmm. uh, but getting yourself under control and being a positive example for your team was and is the most important thing. And you know, when I go to a wedding for one of my former players and guys come up to me and tell me about the relationship we had, I mean, that's more important than an NCAA championship. Um, you know, those relationships is so important. So I used to always say, like, we always think that winning takes care of everything. It, it, it just kind of creates different problems. You know, you win once, now you've got an expect expectation to win again. And, you know, so don't always think winning takes care of it, but how you handle yourself in the moment 
is so very important. Uh, 32 years, I got one coach's warning. Uh, and uh, I would say this, that I always had my stuff together unless my kids were playing. And I remember once a player walked up to me and he said, oh my God, I've always thought you were the coolest dude, but you're losing your shit right now and your son's playing, but you don't want anybody to see this. And I looked at him and I was like, please don't tell anyone. <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, you, you're the leader. You have to carry yourself the right way. And um, I thought, I always believed that having officials on my side was a better thing for my team. And, and I also think officials get treated so poorly that I, I, you know, we just ran a ITF men's and women's and I love all the officials. I, I love hanging out with them and, you know, they're people that make the world go round in tennis. And, you know, so treating people properly is very important and, and, and treating, you know, treating officials terribly is not doing anybody favors. And, and I really, I watched and, you know, we can name names, but, you know, I, I really, 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 really believe the first three NCAA championships that the other coach lost their cool. Mm -hmm. And um, a very, very interesting stat was, I believe, and, you know, I'm not a stat guy, but, in five NCAA championships, we never lost a doubles point until the finals. And three out of the five, we lost a doubles point. And those, I watched those coaches and they would lose it. And I think you have to know yourself and the pressure is so great and you think it's so important. Um, <clears throat> and, and, I don't know. It's just a game. It's just, I used to always tell my team, we're, we're not curing cancer out here. There's a reason we're not on the front page. We're, we're back in the newspaper. I mean, there's no more newspapers, but it, it, it's just not as important as, as you think it is. And how you handle yourself is way more important than the W. Um, and so you don't want to get too high during the season. And you don't want to get too low. Um, you know, I always love the national team indoors because I got to feel the energy and my team got to feel the energy of the other top 16, 15 teams in the country. And, you know, we won that once. And I remember Yannick Kampman was in the finals. He was going to play a set for it. And he sat down on the bench and we were playing a set for the national indoors. And I said, well, I see some benefits to us winning this, but I actually see some benefits to us losing this set. So don't worry about it. Just go play your tennis. That was it. That was my speech. And, yeah. and I really believed that. It wasn't that big a deal for me to win, but people want to win a little bit too much now. It's about building your team. Hmm. Uh, and, and to do that, you have to be the leader that they all look up to. And if you're losing your stuff, how can you ask them to have any discipline? Right, right. 
Well, thank you, Peter, for, for sharing that, your, your game day process and, and your, your thoughts on that particular topic. And, and I really hope every young coach listens to, to what you just said, because I think there's absolute gold in there. So thank you. And, and giving a shout out to our officials as well, which it's just not an easy job unless you've sat in that chair and, and recognize how hard it is to call the balls and get it all right. Um, yeah, I just encourage our coaches to to treat our officials with as much respect as they can. So, um, but going, you know, you talked about your focus on May and 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 winning it all. Was, was that one of the drivers for making the moves that you made? You started your career at Long Beach State. You went to Fresno State. You went to Pepperdine, and then ended your career at USC. What what were some of um, and I'm sure you had a million offers to go here, there and everywhere to, to coach, you know, at, at athletic departments all over the country. But we're, we're in July right now. We have a lot of coaches changing jobs, considering jobs. You know, should I make this move? Should I not make this move again? Any advice you'd have for coaches as they weigh up, um, you know, making that move or staying put as to as to where they are currently? Yeah, I mean. Look, I, I was at Long Beach State and they dropped the program. Um, I collected unemployment for two months. Hmm. Um, back then you had to go wait in line to get your check. Um, it was tough. Um, and I, you know, so it, going to Fresno and look, I, I have to say that coaching in Fresno in a lot of ways was the most enjoyable. Um, I mean, I think that goes to where I was in my life. I had just gotten married. My wife and I moved away from her parents and my parents, and it was just her and I. And so it really felt like that. But, you know, Fresno was such a great community. We, we loved it. Um, and But we knew we wanted to get back to Southern Cal. And, you know, so I kind of looked at UC Irvine. I kind of looked at USD, San Diego State, I can't remember, but for some reason, and I would say blindly, I don't know, I, I always had this faith in myself that maybe um, I thought I would get Pepperdine. Um, I knew it was, I mean, it was crazy when they hired me, Brad Sini, who was a senior on the team, he said, do you realize you and the assistant will be the seventh and eighth coach I've had since I've been here. So I knew there was some turnover there. I knew there were some issues and, you know, I was fortunate to get it. Um, but I, I just was kind of holding out for that. So, I mean, who would have guessed we would have had the success we had at Fresno state. I mean, yeah. you know, being top five in the country is unheard of quarterfinals in the NCAAs. I mean, I looked at that. We we're round of 16, round of 16, quarterfinals, round of 16. I mean, it was a little easier then because it was regionalized, but you're like, wow. You know, um, so that enabled me to go to to Pepperdine. And we were chatting before that you came right after me. And I remember the meeting I had with the team. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm leaving. I'm going to Malibu. I'm going to Pepperdine. And one of the guys said, can we go with you? <laughs> so I, I took a few with me. Um, but well, you opened up a scholarship for me, so thank you. There we go. It worked out. It worked out for everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then when I was at Pepperdine, I, I I didn't 
think I was going to leave, but I was frustrated that I was being out recruited by SC and UCLA. Mm. And I felt like I was just as good a coach. I mean, you know, being a young man, I, I believed I was better and I was frustrated that I couldn't get the better Americans. Um, you know, so uh, I, I got offered the USC job without even being interviewed. I mean, I, I, looking back i really didn't interview for any of those positions it, it's kind of remarkable wow i'm fortunate now to be at the jack kramer club but i interviewed for this job in the middle of the pandemic which was weird enough because everyone was wearing masks but I, I was like i've never really interviewed for a job <laughs> <laughs> it was very it was it was different and stressful i mean i of course i met with people but mm -hmm. i they had kind of already made decisions. So I had to blow it, which is very different than I've got to earn it, you know, in the interview. Um, so when I, they offered me the USC job, I wasn't even at home. I was at NCAs. I called my wife and she's like, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, it's kind of always been a dream to coach there. She goes, this is, what are you doing? You said the dream was Pepperdine. Now you're saying the dream's USC. I was like, go with me, honey. Um, but you know, it was, it was a great move and, um, you know, it's obviously when you go to schools like that, it's just a different ball game. Um, but yeah, it was, I, I would say I always bet on myself and I just trusted my gut and had a sixth sense. Um, so do we lose the lights? <laughs> The power is out. Sure, what happened there? ITA is not paying their bills. <laughs> the heat surge in Arizona. But, you know, so that was that was it. It was it was always keeping my antenna up a little bit. But, you know, just like I, I you know, again, I, I go back to probably my jo most joyous days were were Fresno State and doing some of the incredible things we did there. Yeah. Um, and that set the stage for us to do other things down the road. Right, right. So. And uh, that's, yeah, another topic I wanted to get into, Peter, was was around, you know, managing your budget and, and, and the money. I mean, you're you're really trying to win at at the highest level at Fresno State. And OK, you know, it's a, a different time and I'm not talking about NIL and Alston money and things like that. But you know, you, you didn't have the biggest budget. I played there, so I know kind of what the budgets were, but you're you're trying to compete against these these schools. And, and I imagine at Pepperdine and even at USC, if we compare a USC maybe to a Texas, say, um, you were never operating with the, the biggest budget, but you were maximizing whatever you have. And obviously the majority of the coaches listening to this and the majority of coaches in the country across all five divisions, have very small small budgets and they're making decisions every day as to where to spend that money and and how did you think about that i'm not really getting into the fundraising just what was your decision making when you had to make those difficult choices as to your your reasoning behind making that choice if you're choosing you know was it scheduling was it um, you know, uh, ease of travel? Was it recruiting? Uh, you know, where where did you think about putting your limited resources? It was one thing and one thing only. How do I get my team better? 
mm-hmm. um, recruiting, like when I was at Fresno State, like getting mileage, you know, I mean, that's absurd. I, I, I didn't, I mean, I don't remember what the recruiting budget was, but, you know, I, maybe they paid for my flight in my uh, hotel at Kalamazoo. But other than that, I was just in my car driving right. everywhere. Um, I mean, I can remember driving to Ensenada, Mexico to watch Frederick Berg play uh, an ITF there. And incredibly, it rained the whole time. And, you know, we spent the whole time kind of chatting. Um, mm. So, you know, um, <clears throat> in arriving back home at like 2 a.m. and, you know, you're just, you're, you're just working, um, you know, so I, it was, you know, we, we, you know, look, I, I went to school at Long Beach State. I mean, we, we, it was four to a room, two to a bed. I mean, it's nuts. Um, you know, it was, it was much more challenging than what we had, you know, certainly in the last few years at USC, but, you know, money, money creates issues. It doesn't solve them. Um, mm. You know, I, but you were, I was just trying to, you know, who can we schedule and take a van there and, you know, certain things like that. And, and fundraising was a big part of it. I was a big fundraiser and, you know, we would have parties for a trip to national indoors or, you know, trip here, trip there. And, you know, we, 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 we were doing a lot of that stuff in Fresno. Um, we had a huge pro-am, um, you know, 40 plus people one year. And mm-hmm. we, we did some things that, you know, <laughs> always, you know, we had, we had a Calcutta and yeah. you know, we got everyone in a good frame of mind for it. And, and, you know, half of that proceeds went, you know, to, back to the players and half went to the program. And, you know, mm-hmm. we, re- we did a lot of those different things and, but, you know, recruiting things like that, the fall, it was just about where can we go? Where can we have good wins to get better? It was always about just getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, and wh- how would the money take us there? And, uh, you know, I think a couple of my bosses would laugh at, you know, my, again, my skill as a money manager, um, because <laughs> I wouldn't say, you know, I would, I would have a lot of arguments over with that with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my ability to do that um, was, was important. Um, and and just coming up with the that creativity to fundraise money and things like that. Um, you know, a couple of funny stories is at Fresno State, you played in the Spalding Wathen Tennis Center, which was this dream of mine. We built it for four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Right. I played tennis with Spalding all the time. My wife and I would go play with him and Bill Hancock. And yeah, one night we're you know we're played and we're having a beer afterwards and. I said, Spalding, you know, I'd like to build a new facility. He said, how much do you need? And I said, $100,000. And I went to my boss the next day. I didn't even like run it by my boss. And I said, oh my God, I've got great news. And he said, what? I said, I got $100,000 for the facility. And he goes, you're an idiot. And I was like, all hurt like a puppy dog. I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, you can't do anything with $100,000. 
I said, how much do we need? He goes, at least 250. I said, all right. Next week I went back. I was like, hey, Spalding, I made a big mistake. We need 250. And Spalding's like, sure, no problem. And I probably could have got 500, but you know, <clears throat> all of that stuff was important. Um, you know, and when we won at USC, you know, I would I would give out national championship rings to a lot of the prominent boosters. And when it mm -hmm. came down to it, you know, one of our boosters really stepped up and because he was treated right. And it, again, it all goes back to taking care of people, treating people right, doing the right thing. And, and that's what I tried to do for a very long time is, is treat people the right way. Okay. Well, Peter, I'm going to get into some uh, kind of rapid fire questions, but but please don't feel like you need to answer them quickly. It just uh, I'll I'll ask them quickly. So, is there a book, passage, quote, video, podcast, or something else that's that had a major impact on your coaching career? Yeah, I mean, when I was, I mean, there were no podcasts. <laughs> I, you know, I I mean, I think the best thing about being a college coach and the hardest thing I struggle with now is, you know, I work six days a week now. And let me tell you that Sunday or Saturday goes by very quick. Mm. And when you're a college coach, you know, sometimes you can work 100 hours a week, whatever you're traveling, but then you'll have a downtime of two to three weeks a year, or sometimes a month. You know, December was usually pretty easy. June was pretty easy. And I would spend that time getting better. So I would love, I would devour books. Um, Shusevsky, Bill Walsh, Phil Jackson. Um, probably one of the best books I ever read was Let the Scoreboard Take Care of Itself by Bill Walsh. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like you could do a class around that book. That could be a semester of learning. And I think right there, Let the Scoreboard Take Care of Itself, incredible quote, right? The scoreboard takes care of itself. You got to do, you know, Life is all about process. Sport is all about process. You know, football, which he was a coach of, and tennis is, you know, you got to get caught up in the process and what the process will produce the W. You focus on the W, you're done. Um, I mean, the very first tennis book I read was Inner Game of Tennis. And I would say that, you know, I've had my teams read that book over the years. I have my students read it now. Uh, and I think that really set the stage for me in my whole um, career and how I wanted to coach and, you know, not be so critical, not be that critical judge. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I was out to dinner with our, our volleyball coach at USC last week, and he said in his family, they actually give that critical voice a name. And I thought that was genius because we always have that critical person kind of nabbing at you. I've learned to get away from that in tennis. Um, you know, it took me a long time to learn that I'm in control of my mind. Mm -hmm. You know, the circumstances aren't in control. I'm in control. And so, but I thought that was giving that name... <laughs> I gave my critical mind uh, my father's name. <laughs> I mean, it's a good way to remember my dad. And, and I would say that was kind of our relationship. So it's kind of funny. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, inner game, you know, just I loved reading books that coaches wrote. Uh, I found a lot of enjoyment from it. Yeah. And did you have a favorite drill you like to do with your teams at USC? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say two. Um, and I would say both kind of were around my philosophy. Look, I was super important that Pancho Segura was my coach as a junior. Pancho was all about taking time away. Mm -hmm. um, and he was he was so fast. He took the ball early. He volleyed so good. Um, so we had a team approach pass game. Uh, back in the day, we played for butts up every first practice, you know, first practice in fall, first practice in spring. We would do that's against freshmen. Um, and, you know, looking back, probably should have done it like that. But, you know, it it, it brought everyone together. It created a good synergy. Um, you know, I remember Prakash Armitrage saying, oh, I got to go. I got to go when it was time for him to do butts up. But uh, <laughs> that was good because, you know, it was about, you know, being fearless, going to the net. But I, I think one of the drills that defined me over the years that I still do is depth drill, um, side to side deep, um, you know, having guys be able, you know, you hit it short of the cone, it's minus one, past the cone, uh, plus one. Um, so just getting guys running and having them hit quality shots. For me, it was always about, we want to create our short balls. Um, and and to do that, you got to have depth. And to hit a good ball, you, you know, you you got to use your legs. You got to be in position to hit it deep. So it was just creating that quality of a ground stroke and and just giving them something very challenging to do. And so with that depth drill, were you doing that uh, hand feeding or was that live ball or a little live bit? ball? Like I'm live a huge ball. fan yeah. of everything live ball. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a big fan of feeding. Um, and that was again, you know my players i can remember mike noel played for me at fresno state you know he was like oh i hate feeding and i was like you're right like and and look i i was always a good enough player to to mimic what i needed to mimic by hitting the ball so i i used all of that in my favor um but yeah having the guys hit back and forth um and creating drills and scenarios with them playing was way more important to me than feeding feeding is just too stagnant for mm -hmm. me okay next question do you have a favorite coaching memory it's a tough one <laughs> yeah i mean you know i mean of course when you win your first ncaa championship you you know i i i was incredulous you know really that um that we won and it was like, oh, this is how it feels. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, if you look back, you know, I had Robert Farah playing one, who was number one in the world in doubles, and Steve Johnson playing two. I mean, that's that's a pretty good one-two punch. Um, you know, but you know, we were lucky to win the doubles and D win came through at six. Uh, so that was just incredible. Um, of course, you know. I, my kids are still with me. I see them all the time and having them, you know, have some special moments is special in my brain, but you yeah. know, you, you go back to, I mean, first, firsts are important again, Fresno state, you know, being in the quarterfinals, of the NCAA is incredible memory. Um, <laughs> incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you keep messaging Fresno state. Um, so 
if coaches are listening to this podcast and you've talk, talked a lot about learning, but is there one thing you can give them that you believe will help them be a better coach 12 months after listening to this podcast, something they can be doing on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, a daily basis? Is there anything they can be doing that will ensure they're a better coach 12 months from now? It was, it was funny because, um, <clears throat> you know, you, you mentioned this last night in an email and I asked my son this, uh, Riley was over for dinner last night. And, you know, so I think that's it right there, right? I didn't come out with the answer. Mm-hmm. I asked someone who is still very young. He just turned 26 and still very fresh to him. And I said, Riley, what's the most important thing? Mm. He said, communicate. He said, he goes, I felt like that's what you did really well. And that's what coaches need to do better. Um, and I think the most important part of communicating is listening. Um, having those, those, that dialogue, if there's a problem, go have coffee, go have lunch, go have whatever, and listen. Um, I think too many times we spend too much of our time telling. Um, and And I just think working hard that they're on the same page with you is everything. Um, our success was centered around my captains and myself absolutely being on the same page. And that just didn't happen. That was something we work at. And that's something we still share today. Um, and that's, you know, that's a lifelong deal. But um communicating with them, listening to them, understanding, and then getting them to believe in what your goals are is, is really important. And, and that's not quick. Yeah. Uh, relationships are work and that's something I really enjoyed. And so that was easier for me. Got it. And Peter, last question, like I said, I have, I have a million questions for you, but is there something through your years in coaching that you often receive questions from other coaches or maybe your assistant coaches or players that you coach who transitioned into the coaching ranks? I guess what I'm asking, is there something I should have asked you that that I didn't that you think comes up a lot with college coaches and, and any final words of advice? Um, look, Again, I, I don't want to say or think uh, that I was in any way, shape, or form better than anyone. Um, but <clears throat> my losses shaped me. Um, and, you know, so in the NCAs, Frederick Berg was in the finals of the singles he was playing Cecil Manet he broke to go up 1-0 in the third and lost 6-2 um Robert Lindstedt and Kelly Gullett were up 3-0 and I don't remember this they said it was 3-0 love 40 I mean leave it to Bob and Mike to create even a better scenario for them to come in and 
the fault of those matches were solely on me. I didn't do a good enough job in an individual, but look, hey, when you're in the finals of the NCAAs in anything, it's, it, it's a team effort, you know, obviously, you know, it's more the individual and the individual, but I didn't have a plan for them. Um, and I promised that that would never happen again. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, it's very delicate and and I don't want to say this and have everybody like start doing crazy stuff on the courts, but I, 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 I was not afraid to make a call. I was not afraid to have plays for my guys, much like a basketball coach, much like a football coach. Again, you have to have a flexible mindset because not everyone needs it or not everyone wants it. Um, and certain players do certain things, but being able to make the call to chip in charge or kick serve and volley or get in. I mean, I, sometimes I would coach in the middle of the point. Um, you know, I would coach in between first and seconds. And mm -hmm. I mean, people used to get really irritated with me that, I had, look, I, I walk a certain way. My chiropractor said I have some issues with my, my Achilles <laughs> walk on my heels, but, you know, but I, I, I would not want to ever run. I would always walk across the court. I would talk to my players. I would make them feel comfortable, but I would tell my guys, like, I'm going to be right 75, 80% of the time. And I think you're going to be right 50, 60% of the time. So Again, it's like forming that relationship. So in that moment, they trust you and they believe in you. Um, you know, I remember 2014, you know, Max DeVroon playing. And uh, he was up 40 love. And I told him to kick serve and volley on a second serve. And he lost the point um, and got broken. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I just lost the CNCAs. What am I doing? And then he broke incredibly and he was up 40 love again. <laughs> and at 40, 30, he looked at me. I said, first serve, kick serve and volley. Let's get out of here. And he, I said, we, we can't lose this twice. <laughs> and, and we played the odds, but, you know, having the guts and having that relationship that the guys trusted you and believed in you in that moment, I think is very important. And, and, you know, my first semester was always spent teaching guys how to volley. Um, Steve Johnson didn't need to learn how to volley. Um, but, you know, and I knew that pressing going forward in those big moments still worked. Yeah. And, and, and creating that, Whereas it might not work for two years, um, but you need to have a complete game to win. Um, that, you know, pretend you've been there before. Uh, I would I would say that I've said that a lot to my sons in our different competitions, but to the team, you know, let's act like we've been here before, guys. Mm. And having fun with that moment. That's really, really, really important. Yeah. Well, thank you, Peter. It's 
great, great note to end on. Um, this was a lot of fun. Thank, thank you. I, I'm excited to get this out to the coaches and, and uh, I'm sure they'll uh, get as much out of it as I did. I don't even coach anymore. So this is, this is awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Dave.